Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity Company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, News Bureau Chief for WFIU and WTIU. And this week, we're going to be discussing palliative care. Uh, in late March, Governor Mike Pence signed a bill into law establishing a palliative care and life advisory council. Members of the council will represent personal and professional perspectives on health care to advocate for palliative care. We're going to discuss that, uh, the new law and the goals of the new council with our two guests who are in the studio today. Senator Mark Stoops is a Democrat from Bloomington. He represents District 40, and he co-authored the bill that led to the new law. And Dr. Lyle Fettig is Associate Director, Palliative Medicine Fellowship at the Indiana University School of Medicine. You can join the conversation by calling us at 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, uh, Senator Stoops, welcome back. And Thank do- you. Dr. Fedig, really nice to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks for asking. Uh, right. Thanks, thanks for being here. So, I want to start with you. Um, can I call you Lyle? Is that sure, right? please okay, do. Okay, thank you. Um, wanted to start with you and just ask you about uh, to define palliative care for for me. I was talking with you before the show about how we had done a, a show on death with dignity and palliative care came up. Dr. Rob Stone was in the studio with us and he works with hospice palliative care. So, how would you define it? What are the differences with some of these other things we might hear about? Great. I think that's a great starting place. I, I think that the most common definition of palliative care uh, would be to define it as specialized medical care for patients and their families, patients who are facing serious illness. It focuses on providing symptom relief as well as support in the face of stress that comes with serious illness. So the goal is to improve quality of life for both patients and their families. It's provided by a specially trained uh, team of professionals, not just physicians, but it's an interdisciplinary team that includes nurses, social workers, chaplains, sometimes psychologists, pharmacists. And, and we aim to provide an extra layer of support in addition to what the other uh, providers, what the other physicians are providing, not to substitute, but to supplement. So it's appropriate for a patient at, at any age any patient that's facing a serious illness, and at any stage of, of the illness. So I think that that's a, an important distinction to uh, something like hospice care, which is very much related to palliative care and has several similar aims, uh, yet is limited to a more restricted population, a, a patient population that's anticipated uh, to die in the next six mm-hmm. months. So this, this, the kind of care that we're talking about, palliative care, it can occur you know, in a hospital, in hospice, in someone's home, just day to day, it can sort of be happening anywhere? Uh, that's correct. Uh, palliative care is, is a specialty started in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and many palliative care teams uh, started in, in the hospital setting. However, much of medical care is, is provided uh, outside the hospital, of course, and in, in clinics and nursing facilities at the home. And so there has been a growth of palliative care into those, into those other settings, and there needs to be continued growth in, into those settings. Mm-hmm. So this is care in addition to like, whatever your your core care team would be providing, kind of in that way, like hospice care. It's just another layer, essentially. That's that's correct. So patients may be receiving, you know, if, if it's a patient with cancer, they may be receiving chemotherapy or surgery. Uh, if it's a patient that's in the intensive care, they may be receiving all of the, the treatments that go along with being in the intensive care unit. And then we provide an extra layer of support on top of that. So Senator Mark Stoops is here. Um, 
Mark, so why did you decide to get involved with this at the legislative level? What, what need did you see? Well, I think the American Cancer Society has been working on trying to get a, uh, this bill through for a couple of years. Um, this year, um, the Senate Minority Leader, Tim Lannan, who's my uh, caucus leader, and the chair of the Health Committee in the Senate, Patricia Miller, um, uh, co-wrote this bill and, uh, and uh, decided to move it forward. Uh, also, at the same time, we had a lot of uh, contact from uh, Carol Krauss and some um, members of her family and also friends and other people uh, that, that Carol knew that were in the same situation. Carol, um, as you know, died of uh, cancer, or as you may know, she was very public about it, so I'll use her name. Right, right, sure. And she was very much an advocate for death with dignity and, and uh, uh, doctor-assisted suicide. Um, and I'll, we could probably go into that later. Uh, but the palliative care, on the other hand, was a step that I think Indiana could take. And, and really, it's a matter of, to me, it was a matter of letting people know that this option was out there, because I don't think a lot of people uh, understand it or know that they have access to it or can have access to it. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the key elements in the, in the new law? Well, the main thing is it sets up um, this advisory council, and the advisory council um, has a set of uh, duties assigned to it, and one of those is to, uh, I guess, um, create a set of standards uh, so that anybody who requests palliative care knows what to expect. And and uh, I guess, uh, from what I understand, and um, Dr. Fedig may, uh, may talk about this, that there's a, there's a, a variety of ways that palliative care is delivered in Indiana today. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to mention, you know, since you brought up Carol Krauss, um, Dr. Fedig may not be aware of, of Carol. She had written for uh, our paper in the home section for many, many years, and then she was diagnosed with this very rare form of cancer, and, and she wrote about it and blogged about it extensively as she was going through, you know, her last phases. And, and I guess, uh, you know, from, from your standpoint, um, you know, I think she really put a face on somebody who has a terminal illness, and it sounds to me as if palliative care and the access to it goes sort of, it goes hand in hand, and obviously it does, since she was talking with Mark about someone who's going through that time. I mean, how... How uh, you know, can you sort of talk about that relationship between a patient who gets that diagnosis and the kind of care you're providing and the need for the kind of care that you provide? Uh, certain long question, long, long involved question. <laughs> certainly, yes, and I can I can think of uh, many examples, and I think it's wonderful to see the uh, grassroots uh, patient advocacy that's that's going on out there. I think there are several other examples. Uh, nationally of, of people that have uh, highlighted the experience of living with a life-threatening illness such as cancer and highlighted uh, some of the supportive care needs that I think uh, palliative care aims to, to meet. I think that when we, and actually our team, I work at Eskenazi Hospital in Indianapolis, uh, our team is actually embedded in the oncology clinic uh, at Eskenazi. And it's not uncommon for us to meet a patient at the time of diagnosis of of an incurable uh, cancer. And one of the key questions that that we ask right away when, when, when we meet patients and families is, how has this already affected your life and how do you worry that it might affect your life going forward? And it's amazing the variety of answers that, that we get. And we let that be the guide to, to our interventions, um, more so than, than the disease itself, but thinking really about the, the patient's experience and thinking about the symptoms that they're going through. Sometimes there's, uh, you know, basic social needs that come up. Sometimes, you know, a, a person may be working part-time and just barely getting by. Um, and all of a sudden, the, the serious illness, because they can't work, it, uh, it puts them on the brink of, of being homeless. So, you know, we have uh, two wonderful social workers that, that work with our team that are excellent at, at helping with those types of issues. But I think that, that uh, asking that question, 
what is the patient's goals and how can we achieve them? That's, that's kind of the, the guiding light uh, to, to all of our interventions, regardless of, of which uh, member of the team is, is working with the patient. So you, you said that you're actually one of the first folks to have conversations with patients after they get a diagnosis, but is, that, is it that way at most hospitals? I'm, I'm just wondering from a patient, how do you know this is out there and get access to this? And I, I think that I should note that uh, it, I, I think it is a bit unusual in Indiana uh, for a palliative care team to be embedded within an oncology clinic. So I would put that caveat in there. I think that uh, oftentimes people do not receive the services until, until it's too late. And it's not uncommon for me to walk into a room and, and, and say, I'm with the palliative care team. What do you know about palliative care? And to get, to get a blank stare. So I think that I love the fact that as part of this council, one of the things will be to provide more education so that there's, so that there's more requests from patients and families who, who might want to have these services. Um, and I think that hopefully that will help create a, a demand that will, that will drive some of the growth in, in the areas that, that do not have as extensive services yet. Then, I mean, what are some of the goals or the things we think might come out of this council? Well, the, I, the way I see it is, is letting people know it's, it's there is probably the primary goal. And then creating the system and the teams that can answer that um, that request when people are in the position that they need, need palliative care. Somebody has heard about it, hopefully, and can refer a patient or tell a patient that that may exist in their hospital or in their local community in some form. Um, but then also just making sure that, that um, it's a high-quality service and the teams are um, created in such a manner so, uh, as, as Dr. Fettig said, so they can address a lot of different issues. Um, and one I hadn't even thought about, actually, until till Dr. Fettig brought it up was sometimes people are in such pain they can't work. They can't pay the bills and, and what happens to them. And it's, and it's good that there's a, um, some type of mechanism to identify that need uh, so that, that people aren't left in a dire situation when they're in that critical medical condition. So, so along with that, though, if, if these folks can't work, how, how do they pay for palliative care? Well, uh, palliative care is is reimbursed largely like other medical care. And at this point in time, um, my services as a palliative care physician would be billed to, to Medicare, Medicaid, or other insurance providers, uh, similar to how the oncologist or a primary care physician would, would bill those services. Oftentimes, hospitals will, will support palliative care teams. Uh, I think that that's another thing that uh, I really love about working at Eskenazi is that uh, early on, several years ago, they, they recognized, I think they were an early adopter in using palliative care and recognizing the value to, to patients and families. And so we do, we do, receive, we do receive support from our, our hospital um, and I think that there are potentially other creative ways that we could we could think about uh, funding palliative care. Uh, so, Doctor, uh, what who makes up a team? What would be your ideal dream team for a palliative care team? Great question. I think that uh, when when I look at when I look at palliative care, I think that. Uh, the core components definitely would include nursing, a physician, a social worker, ideally a chaplain to assist with the spiritual needs. Um, I think that there's a, a role for a psychologist, um, either part-time or full-time, depending on the, on the volume. Uh, and I think that palliative care, we work very closely with other services within hospitals and health systems such as physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy. Sometimes at, at Eskenazi we have uh, pet therapy. I consider that a, uh, a palliative uh, measure for hospitalized patients who are missing their pets. Um, so, it, but I think for the core team, the physician, the nurse, um, social worker, and chaplain. Right, and, and this I expect is what the advisory council will come up with over time as a set of parameters uh, to work towards. Mm -hmm. 
All right. We're talking about palliative care uh, today on Noon Edition with uh, Senator Mark Stoops and Dr. Lyle Fedig. If you want to join the conversation, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I would uh, I'd like to think that there are some people out there who probably are wrestling with some of these issues right now. And, you know, we have experts in here in our studio, so please uh, don't hesitate to, to give us a call. Um, Dr. Fetig, uh, it sounds as if this is a an area of health care um, and, and a health delivery, care, care delivery that is really expanding, probably not that well-known. That's why we're doing a show on it today. <laughs> um, you know, your hospital, Eskenazi, you talked about how you're embedded with, uh, with a, um, a cancer unit and that that's kind of unusual. I mean, uh, uh, what's your hope for how this might spread and what, what are the prospects that, that the awareness will spread? So I... I actually took over as the director of the Indiana University Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship within the last year, and uh, we have a we have a workforce issue that uh, we don't have the f- physicians that have the uh, training to to provide this level of care. Uh, so that's certainly one of the aims of our fellowships. We have 10 sponsoring specialties, and this year we have three physicians, two who actually came back from practice to receive additional training, one who just came out of residency. So one of those physicians is going to be going to, to Muncie, to Ball Memorial, to, to basically become the full-time physician there for the palliative care team. Uh, prior to this, they've uh, been uh, utilizing the services of a part-time physician. Uh, and, and our other two uh, fellows will be, will be going uh, elsewhere. Uh, we, we need to continue to grow the number of physicians that complete the fellowship training, and then also create opportunities for frontline providers, uh, primary care physicians, oncologists, uh, others who face who see patients who face serious illness to provide better palliative care themselves, and I think uh, this council will will help in terms of uh, guiding the the systems that will help those people do their jobs better and provide palliative care, but also hopefully create some mechanisms by which uh, they could potentially receive some further education to to help them meet those needs better. Yeah, it does seem like it's a, you know it's a multi-layered approach that you're talking about because not only I mean you're you're a physician who specializes in this area. A lot of people become comfortable you know with their oncologist or their primary care doctor, and it would be very helpful. It seems to me for all that knowledge, or some of that knowledge, at least trickle down. And I, and I should say that uh, I, many oncologists and primary care physicians already do a very nice job with uh, many facets of this. But I think that uh, through creating better systems uh, that will help patients with this, uh, hopefully the care will, will be more fluid and, and we, can, we can meet those, those needs better. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, this sort of early versus late integration of palliative care. Can you just talk about the the difference in terms of what you can provide a patient if you're in on, on the ground early versus late in the game? I, I think that uh, getting back to asking that that question, what is most important to you um, at this point in time as you face this this serious illness, and asking that question again as, as time goes by, because oftentimes the, the answer changes and priorities change as, as a person's condition evolves. And so I think the big advantage of uh, seeing a patient earlier on is being able to establish that relationship and growing accustomed to uh, answering that question and, and working as hard as we can towards those goals. And then if, if a patient's uh, no longer responding to, to treatments, say, for instance, chemotherapy, uh, then you know, we're asking the same questions that we've been asking all along. And hopefully it feels like, 
less of an abrupt transition and we say, okay, now we're at this, this next juncture in the journey and um, how can we, you know, face this situation now with, with, with as much dignity as possible. And so I think that by establishing that relationship earlier on, uh, we're not a strange face and it, and it doesn't feel like uh, such an abrupt uh, transition like it might if, if a patient doesn't receive the services until very late in their illness. So I guess I'm confused about how all these services continue. It makes sense if you have somebody who's in like an assisted living place or some where their location is and people, doctors come in all the time and I can see a chaplain coming in, but how do you, how do you manage that if the person is home and not, mm-hmm. not in a hospital or someplace every day? So for, for instance, uh, just giving an example at our Eskenazi with our Eskenazi palliative care team, uh, we actually we actually make home visits to patients. So it's not uncommon for us to meet a patient in the hospital setting, follow up with them in the clinic as they're receiving treatment, and then later on as as they as they get sicker, uh, we we may make a home visit to 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 follow up on on their needs um, as, as their illness. Progresses so most of most of the service early on is is provided in the in the clinic or the hospital setting, uh, but if we get a good chance to to know that that patient, then we will later on uh, visit the visit the patient at home, and we'll also work very closely then because oftentimes we'll help patients access hospice services, and I feel like if we're involved earlier on that that transition to to hospice service. We work very closely then with the hospice team to continue to provide that care. And there, I was Go just going to say, it, it is important that we, we somehow encourage more providers to enter the palliative care uh, field and, and be on teams. But one thing with the state legislature, we always have to make the financial case as well as the moral case. And I think the moral case is there's a real need. But the financial case is that if, um, I think the going back over some testimony, there are 90 million Americans that are living with some form of serious illness right now. And so palliative care isn't just for end of life. It's also maybe if they're in a period uh, where they have a serious illness that's affecting their lives and they're in pain, uh, et cetera. Uh, but uh, with palliative care teams, the the patient is far less likely to go into the, be admitted to the hospital, um, or even readmitted. So there's a real savings there. Hospitals are expensive. Um, uh, hospital stays are expensive. This is all covered by, uh, as you said, Mer- uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and uh, private pay. And so this is a this is a way to actually reduce the costs overall and, and really provide better care. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We're, we're listening to Noon Edition as we talk about uh, palliative care, the uh, Indiana Palliative Care and Life Advisory Council, which was just established. We have two guests, Senator Mark Stoops and Dr. Lyle Fedig. Uh, we'll be right back after we take this 90-second break. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. And we are talking with Senator Mark Stoops, a Democrat from Bloomington and District 40 in the Indiana legislature, who uh, was very involved with a bill that led to a new law for uh, establishing a palliative care and life advisory council. Uh, here in the state of Indiana, and also Dr. Lyle Fettig, Associate Director and palli- of the Palliative Care, Palliative Medicine Fellowship. I hope that's right. Is that close? I hope that's right. At yes. Indiana University School of Medicine in Bloomington, or in uh, University of Indiana University School of Medicine, which is, of course, headquartered in Indianapolis. You can join the discussion by calling us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. We do have a phone call, and uh, Wendy has been very patient. Wendy, go ahead. Hi. Hi. My mother was seriously ill recently, 92 years old, was diagnosed with a metastatic um, multiple myeloma. And, you know, I think all of us kind of assume that at this end of life, as we're dealing with these issues, that insurance does kick in and insurance does cover. I think it was kind of astounding for us as we went through this to find out the things that insurance does not cover. And a couple of the astounding things that that we witnessed was because she had... um, cancer in the bones and one of the things that they were trying to do for pain relief for her was to give her radiation therapy to shrink those spinal tumors to keep the pain down what we found at that time even though we knew she was in stage and this was palliative and pain control of what we were doing that she could not go into a hospice situation she was not considered somebody that could get quote, palliative care as long as she was getting radiation, that by Medicare guidelines, if you are getting radiation, you are not in palliative care at that point, which is somewhat amazing to me when we're dealing with a pain relief situation. And then the other things that I think all of us assume is that when somebody is at end stage life with Medicare coverage, that when she's end stage and having the final changeover from being treated, and when we opted not to do the radiation, and she truly was palliative and hospice, that while hospice covers a few days a week, they do not cover her entire stay. She wasn't bad enough to be in the hospital, but she wasn't good enough to be in her home, so we were in a care facility, and at that point, she's not deemed, quote, salvageable by Medicare rules, so it ends up being transferred over to a fee that the family pays. And we were fortunate that we didn't have those financial issues that we had to deal with. But there are a lot of families that could not have afforded this transition time frame. And while hospice will come in three days a week for you, they're not going to come in and do 24-hour care under any circumstances, whether it's in the home or whether it's in a long-term care facility. That is not covered by Medicare. So, doctor, you're uh, nodding your head. <laughs> Well, Wendy, first of all, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very sorry for some of the issues that uh, you faced with your mother. It's, uh, it's very difficult to navigate some of these system issues at the same time, you know, trying to, trying to provide emotional support for, for your mother. And uh, I, I think that you've highlighted another, a number of important issues that uh, we, we face every day. And I think that this may actually extend to a national conversation about how uh, palliative and hospice care are provided. Uh, it is it is true that uh, oftentimes uh, patients who enter hospice uh, then have to forego uh, treatments such as such as radiation and, and chemotherapy. And even if sometimes if if it's thought that the radiation might help provide some palliative benefits, some symptom relief. And that has to do with uh, the complexities of how hospice is paid for in the United States. Now, certainly um, patients who are in a situation similar to to Wendy's mother can receive uh, some palliative care services. Uh, but even a palliative, and it would, would be covered by insurance, but the type of care that uh, Wendy's mother really needed as far as the um, caregiver support in the home, uh, it unfortunately, is, is, is not covered uh, to, to the degree that, that many would, would want. So, so 
that is sometimes this is called uh, when when people are faced with a choice between receiving hospice services uh, versus receiving uh, disease modifying treatments such as radiation therapy some people have have uh, coined this the the terrible choice and uh, as a hospital and clinic-based palliative care physician, uh, I, I will admit that, uh, that we don't yet have the solution for, for this, this type of issue. We can provide kind of an extra layer of support and help provide guidance to navigate the, the system as it is and are always you know, happy and, and, and willing to do so. Uh, but at the end of the day, some of these complex dilemmas still remained. We have a yes, absolutely, and I think you know. To me, the other issue too was we were informed at one point that pain control was not an indication for an admit to the hospital any longer. So you do become in this middle zone, even when you get to the just the pain control issue of who's doing it, who's monitoring it, who is going to be managing all of those those issues. In order for a person to qualify for inpatient hospice services, so this is separate from any of the palliative care issues that I've talked about before, but in order to qualify for inpatient hospice level of care, a patient has to have symptoms out of control and it has to be deemed that the patient needs to be in an inpatient facility in order to receive, um, have, have that covered by Medicare. And that's subject to a lot of interpretation. Actually, the rules changed several years ago. It used to be that uh, patients who were nearing the end of life, even if they did not have symptoms out of control, could uh, enter an inpatient hospice facility. Uh, but Medicare uh, put the clamps on that a bit and decided that uh, they would have a higher standard of, of really requiring um, a patient have a, a, high, a very high level of symptoms. And that does create uh, consternation in, in a lot of circumstances, especially when, when it's a struggle to, to care for the patient at home, even if, even if some of the treatments that can help control the pain can, can be done at home. I yeah, I wanted to ask. I just want to add, we actually passed in the legislature last year a caregiver's bill that would allow some offset for caregiver expenses. Uh, in, in situations like that. So we, we had another question, just asking if you can explain or further define palliative care, uh, serious illness, and quality of life. These terms seem kind of opaque. It, it is very, very broad. And I, I think that, um, you know, how, how do you define serious and how do you, def I think it's easier to de define quality of life, you know, in terms of uh, making sure that, that symptoms are as well controlled as, as possible, uh, making sure that, that social and psychological needs are, are tended to, uh, and, and spiritual needs, you know, some of the, the distress. Um, uh, one of my favorite uh, physician authors who's written about suffering by the name of Eric Cassell, uh, defined suffering as a threat or a perceived threat to a person's identity. And, and so anything that, that might, might threaten the, the person, be it a physical symptom or, you know, uh, the fact that they, they may not feel like they're going to, the person may not feel like they're going to be around in, in two or three years to see their, their son's graduation from high school. Uh, those that that's that's at the heart of suffering. So, so palliative care that's a major focus is trying to. We know that suffering is universal in life, but to try to reduce the unnecessary level of suffering, uh, as well as um, helping a patient cope with the the suffering that that uh, that perhaps nobody can can take away. Um, you know, one might define, I have, so just to, to tell a little bit of a story here uh, without uh, revealing any uh, patient information here. Uh, about a year ago, I saw a patient in the hospital. Uh, Eskenazi has uh, an excellent burn center. And I saw a young woman who had, I think, 90% total body surface area burns and had already been in the hospital for uh, months at the time that I met her. And, and she unfortunately suffered a complication uh, that meant that she would likely have to stay in the hospital for yet another several months. And 
and there was some question about whether the complication was was reversible. And so this was a patient that um, uh, the surgery team asked us to see, and you know she had several profound issues related to uh, how this affected her family life, uh, you know how it affected her her role as a as a parent. Um, and all the symptom issues that went on with, with both the burns and the complications. Uh, plus, she, she had some very specific uh, spiritual concerns, and she uh, practiced a faith that's uh, not the most common in the United States. And, and so that presented a, a bit of a, a challenge, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to best meet those needs because she was not well-connected with a, with a faith community. And so... We, we actually uh, uh, were able to see this patient. She had an extended stay in the hospital for uh, another several months, and, and we followed her very closely in that time period. And at times, it wasn't clear whether she was going to survive. Um, I'm happy to say that she actually did survive the, the complications and is, is doing better now. So I think that that highlights, I, I don't have a, a, a good answer for the serious illness question, but through that, that story, it highlights the fact that it, c it can come in many different forms and that uh, we're definitely not about the, the cut and dry scenario where the disease is, is, is always going to end the person's life. All right. Our phone numbers again are 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Um, that was quite a compelling story, and I'm sure you've got a whole lot of others. They're very dramatic work that you, you do with, with patients. Mark, I wanted to, to turn back to you. As a, as a legislator and a lawmaker, you hear a lot of stories from people who are, come to the legislature seeking some sort of remedy, some sort of help. And I would think in the – you know, we've already sort of talked about some of the some of the – Pay issues with in the the dilemma of certain pay, that certain patients have, um, you know these these complex healthcare issues that come to the legislature. You know how how do you um, you know how do you sort of sort out what the legislature can do, and what you just really are kind of helpless to do when it comes to healthcare and healthcare issues. Uh, it, it's all incremental, uh, incremental improvement. Say the last year as we passed the caregiver. Um, uh, the funding so that caregivers could be get reimbursed. That's a small. That's a small change, um, or the choice for seniors to decide to to uh, you know take access or have access to care in their homes rather than a rather than an assisted living facility, for instance. Um, uh, Medicaid expansion was a big big deal for Indiana, and, and Indiana actually fought Medicaid expansion, but we finally got it. And so we have, now we have the ability to work with programs, expand programs and services for people with mental health issues, people with addiction issues, um, and that comes from both um, the, the medical side, but also criminal justice side. Uh, so how are these funds focused? So you really have to, to figure out where the money is and how to focus it on a particular issue and there are so many there really are there's there's more that we can tackle i think when i first got in the legislature i was working on a, a bill for vision impaired preschool services and they came to me and they said in indiana you have you have these families that have children that are born with impaired vision it's not always identified right away and that causes really serious um, uh, serious developmental effects if it's allowed to continue. So by the time you may catch it in um, in kindergarten or or elementary school, it's gone too far. Um, so really, if you if you focus some funds early to allow services, um, that is a far less expensive way to to treat it overall. So you're reducing your expenses over a lifetime, mm -hmm. and I think that's what we have to do. As, as a government and as a legislature is we have to try to figure out what the priority is for where this money goes and what is the ultimate benefit, cost benefit over time to, to create a rationale for making that move. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to sound insensitive, but I think that that's an important point. Can you speak at all to just the financial benefits overall of palliative care? Do we have data? 
on that? There, there is research uh, available to, to suggest that uh, palliative care uh, might, at the very minimum, be cost neutral and perhaps in some settings save money. And, and certainly, if you speak with frontline palliative care providers, uh, the primary motivation is the improvement of quality of life and the reduction of suffering. Uh, but certainly, we in, in this environment, we all have to be conscious of, of the cost. You know, the cost of healthcare overall are skyrocketing. And so, if we can uh, play a role in bettering people's lives with without increasing costs, and or if if we do increase costs only minimally, or possibly even reducing the costs, that's that that sounds like a win-win to me. <laughs> All right, if you have questions or comments, uh, we have about 15 minutes to go. Give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Um, Dr. Fedig, so um, Senator Stoops and others in the, in the legislature were able to pass this law. It sounds like a, a good step forward. Are there other things that you would look for, um, you know, legislative help with in your area of work? Well, there is there is one thing at the at the national level right now that I that I did want to highlight. Uh, there was a recent bill that was introduced, I believe, by a Wisconsin senator, uh, entitled the Palliative Care and Hospice Education and Training Act, and. What this, what this bill, what my understanding is, is that it uh, aims to do exactly what it says, and that is increase training opportunities, both for people that want to specialize in, in palliative care, uh, but also training opportunities for uh, uh, general providers, and, uh, and as well as junior faculty awards for, for palliative care physicians at uh, medical schools such as, such as Indiana University. Uh, I think more on the local level, I, uh, I think that some of the work that's been done to support caregivers is, is wonderful, and I think that we need to, to further expand on that to, to create other opportunities to, to support caregivers in the home. Um, patients, uh, and I, I think a vulnerable population uh, is, in general, the, the uh, patients who lack the financial resources who may be receiving Medicaid, uh, oftentimes uh, patients will be receiving waiver services through Medicaid that includes uh, a, a home health aid that's, that's routinely in the home. And I think that one thing that has been a, a, a consistent dilemma for, for our team at Eskenazi has been when we do desire to introduce something like hospice services at the same time as, as the patient is receiving those waiver services, uh, oftentimes those, those two systems don't, don't play well together. And what it results in, from, from my vantage point, is patients receiving inadequate care at home and being more likely to reenter the, the hospital. And so I think that, that that's one small example of a, a situation where uh, I think that if, if we can get some of the systems in the state to, to, to play better together and, and uh, enhance support for the, the ones that are really working, that uh, it, it would benefit all of us. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one hope for the advisory council too, that they can come up with those uh, Come up with those requirements and 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 the ability to look look the system over in total, and come up with a better way to do it. Just real quickly, Sarah, it, it sounds like the the federal law that you're talking about, doctors, goes a little further than the state law. Correct. I mean, the 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 with the the training opportunities and things like that. Does does the the care and life advisory council um, work with universities in any way? Uh, I'm sure they would, but I would think the federal law may have some funding associated or some mechanism yeah. associated with grants that either yeah. move down th- from the federal government to the states. Gotcha. Okay. How how are the requirements in Indiana? I mean, I'm sure. Like, what are some other examples in other states that maybe work better than Indiana's that we might be see, might see some of those things come forward in the task force's recommendations or something? Mm. Right. I, I, I mean, that, that's what I would expect, and that's what the hope is for the advisory council. That you would look at other states and see what there is out there? And 
right? Or what what is working better? I mean, that's really yeah. what led us to to the bill this year, and and some of the detail in the bill mm-hmm. was what other states were doing that that seemed to work. And go ahead. I I could perhaps sure. give give uh, an example. I know that. Uh, uh, for instance, Maryland has had a, a similar council for, I believe, over 10 years. And, uh, and, and as well, uh, I know California has, has done some work in this area and have, have actually worked with the state medical board to uh, improve uh, the education of all physicians in, in the practice of, of palliative care. So there's actually a, re- a requirement in California for all physicians to complete a, a certain number of hours of training. I believe it's on initial uh, licensure. So I think that that's, that's an example of, of, of something that, that could potentially be done in Indiana, uh, working at the license level, not only from a, a provider standpoint for physicians, nurses, and others, uh, but also at a, a facility standpoint, looking at the license requirements for nursing facilities, uh, uh, assisted living facilities, and saying how can we make the, the requirements here uh, more, more friendly to uh, the quality of life of patients and families. Okay, we have another phone call. This is from Bloomington. Uh, Brenda is in Bloomington. Brenda, go ahead. Yes, I have a question about my understanding is that the a uh, three-legged stool that there is hospice, there is palliative care, and there is comfort care. And I'd like to know the differences between the three as far as uh, the treatment and also who's involved. I think that with hospice, you get a whole different team of doctors and nurses and so on. Dr. Fetty, could you uh, tackle that? Sure. Uh, I'm not sure that I've, I've I've heard the three-legged stool uh, analogy before. Is is uh, that's 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 interesting. Where where is that from? Is that do you remember where you you read that or saw that? No, it was, it was just just simply that the the third choice uh, in our situation was comfort care. I see. Okay, so coming from thinking. Thinking yep. about choices yep. that needed Three to choices. be made, Three understood. Yeah, I think that when it comes down to it, um, once again, the the most important question to be asked is, what's what's the goal of the the patient um, it, that's going through the illness, and how can how can the medical treatments and nursing interventions uh, assist with those goals? And, and so I think that that guides the question uh, and, and guides the answer to, to the question that you've asked. Um, you know, sometimes if, if, if there's no other goal that can be achieved besides comfort and it's not going to make any sense to do further chemotherapy to try to prolong a person's life, then, um, you know, then perhaps that, that, that comfort goal is, is, is the only goal, and, and there are many different ways that that, that can be met, whether a person is receiving uh, hospice services alone or, or palliative care in, in a hospital setting, for instance. I think that sometimes the way that I, that I think of the relationship between hospice and palliative care is that hospice... I would say is is one form of palliative care that has a defined a payment mechanism through through Medicare and Medicaid, um, and has is 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 very regulated, um, and and the goal in in that circumstance is oftentimes uh, more exclusively comfort, although there are gray areas when it when it comes to that even. Mm-hmm. All right, Brenda. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for the call. All right. I think we, we don't have uh, enough time for another call probably, but I want to ask uh, Dr. Fedig, you know, you've, you've got a, a pretty large audience out there now. And, you know, I know that in your profession, you probably think of some people maybe, you know, after the fact that you think maybe could have used um, more information about palliative care or that you wish that you would have been able to to work with. Can you talk a little bit about, about that and about maybe some – some examples of, of people that you you would like to reach and say, wow, you know, you should think about palliative care if you uh, if you haven't thought about it, or you should learn about it. 
You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah we've we've talked some about uh, patients with with cancer, um, and I think that I I should emphasize that we we see patients with any type of serious illness, ranging from congestive heart failure to dementia, uh, end-stage renal disease, uh, kidney disease, patients who are on dialysis who are worried about their, their quality of life. And I think that um, it's, it's not common for a patient or a family member to be the ones that reach out to us. Usually it's another provider that refers the patient to our services. I would just I would encourage people to uh, not hesitate to to talk to their other providers or to reach out to a palliative care team directly. There is a resource available online called uh, getpalliativecare.org. It's an excellent website. Um, if there are any palliative care providers that are listening, they should check the website to make sure that their their services are listed there. And I think it's an excellent resources resource for for patients and families. Um, here locally, uh, Dr. Dr. Rob Stone has has been uh, a pioneer pioneer locally here uh, in developing palliative care services uh, at IU Health Bloomington and also the Bloomington Hospice House. So, so that would be another excellent resource. Okay, Mark, we have thirty seconds. Anything you want to add about the bill that you were able to to help get through the legislature or anything else? No, I'm just happy we were able to get it to get it through. It was very as a short session. And I think there was a lot of legwork to make sure everybody was on board with the bill, had, didn't have concerns. The, the other part that we didn't talk about maybe would have, and I, and I hesitate to bring it up because it, it really takes away from the discussion of the palliative care, is that, is that uh, death with dignity um, issue that was uh, really, I think there were a lot of people contacting legislators and said it's, it's time for Indiana. I think we need to look at it. But when, you, when you're approaching legislators, you don't want them to be concerned about that because that is something in the Indiana legislature legislature that would not work. Incremental, right? Incremental. All right. Um, and I don't want to say palliative care is an incremental right. move, but yeah. I would say that it's definitely a, it has a great benefit to mm-hmm. people. All right, we're taking we're uh, out of time. I want to thank Senator Mark Stoops, Dr. Lyle Fedig for being here with us today, for Sophia Salaby, um, Mike Mike Pashkash, and Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company. Fiber internet, HD and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.